Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. They say that knowledge is power. But how much did you know about childbirth before you went into labour? Or if you're pregnant now, how much do you know about the process itself? Professor Stephen Tong is an obstetrics expert and safe childhood researcher who wanted to arm parents with as much knowledge as they can handle. So he wrote a book and quite aptly, it's called The Birth Book. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hello, Siobhan. Uh, Thank you very much for the invitation. Why do you think many parents-to-be go into the birthing suite with less knowledge than other important occasions? It's an interesting question, and I've thought about this for a little bit. I think if you look at a point of view of a first-time mum, she's keen to know birth, uh, has a bit of trepidation of what she's up for. If you just think, oh, what information may be available to her? And it's very hard to negotiate all the information that's out there. And for instance, podcasts and blogs are incredibly valuable. They're very useful resources. They perhaps provide the facts uh, somewhat at random. So it might struggle if you're just relying on those resources to get a complete picture. There's education classes, and I strongly recommend women go to that. You get a lot out of them. But in those short education classes, perhaps you Don't get all the information that you may wish to know if you just want to dig a bit deeper and really understand what you're up for. So I thought about this for 20 years and I have seen and been privileged to look after lots of women have babies, uh, many thousands, in fact, although I don't think I'm quite that old. And I just (laughs) think quite a few walk in and I suspect that they would have a much more fulfilling birth experience if they just had a bit of an idea of what they're in for, and they get a global picture of what they may be in for. And that's where a book may be an advantage because I really have an arc where I give what I hope is the correct block of information that it covers all of birth. Now, I just have to say that, um, you know, I did introduce this interview saying knowledge is power, but I must admit that part of the um, barrier to me knowing more about what labour was going to be like was that I was completely terrified and I thought that knowing more would only scare me more because ultimately I felt like I would be out of control, that it was up to the medical professionals around me to guide me through my labour and that if I knew all the details, I'd just be even more scared. What would you say to any um, expectant mother who might feel that way? Like they're too scared to know more. Well, as you say, knowledge is power. And if the knowledge is conveyed in a way that is respectful and comforting and warm, then hopefully the knowledge can be gained without causing more anxiety and trepidation. And if I've done my job correctly, and it isn't just me, you may not choose to read this book and read other resources. Uh, If you gain the knowledge somehow in the right way, then hopefully you can get a lot of comfort because you just really know the deal. The black box of birth suite is uh, dissolved and you know what you're in for. And I still think that it's possible to get this knowledge without being spooked or scared by it. With that in mind, can you talk us through uh, briefly the three stages of labour? 
Sure. So there are three stages. And the first stage is really the hours while we're waiting for the cervix. Now, the cervix is the opening to the womb, and that needs to open to full dilatation. It needs to be completely open so the baby can pass through the uterus into the birth canal and come out. So the first stage is waiting for the cervix to dilate. Very roughly, it is 10 centimetres and it dilates roughly on the slow side, a centimetre per hour. And first stage usually lasts about six to eight hours for first-time mums, happily much more quickly for second-time mums who have birthed vaginally before. And then when you get to full dilatation, you get to the business end, and that's the second stage of labour. And that's where the all important pushing happens and it ends when you've got your gorgeous baby who pops out and pops into mum's arms and that's a huge relief and lots of excitement at the end of the second stage and that generally goes on for an hour or two for first time mums but it can be much quicker and for second third time mums it can they can really luck in it can be a matter of minutes very quick and then there's a final stage it which is the third stage of labour, and that's when the placenta slides out. And in most cases, the placenta is out in 10, 15 minutes, and we're done and dusted with birth. Uh, Sometimes the recalcitrant uh, placenta just fails to let go of mum and takes a bit longer to come out. So that's a walk through the three stages, Siobhan. So tell me what's happening to a baby throughout those three stages, because I think we often do think about what's happening with our own body, but not necessarily what the experience is like for a baby. As much as you can know that, um, what is going on for babies during those processes of labour? I think that the best way to sum up labour for the baby is it's uh, probably quite a tiring affair. It's a bit like the baby's running a marathon. So with each contraction, we know that there's a reduced blood supply to the placenta. And it makes sense why that happens. The uterine uh, muscle squeezes the blood vessels, which are the mum's blood vessels, which go in and supplies all the nutrients to the placenta or the goodies. With each contraction, the blood supply gets squished and there's less overall blood supply to the placenta. So the longer labours drag on, uh, the more tired babies can come. And babies uh, put up with that very variably and very differently. So some babies, uh, Siobhan, they walk in with excellent reserves and they have absolutely no dramas putting up with those contractions. But some of the babies start flagging and can get very tired. And yet there are a small number which find themselves falling into real trouble. And that's a common reason why we opt for cesarean sections if you're in the first stage or a caesarean section or these instrumental births, such as the forceps in the second stage, when the baby is really stressed, we are worried about whether the baby's doing okay. It's essentially starved of oxygen and whether it will get out safely. So I think uh, that's the dominant concept for babies. They're running a marathon. Now, heaps like a lot of marathon runners will do just fine, but some will find it a struggle. What I found interesting about, um, I think it was in the introduction of your book, you talk about the empowerment of women through understanding what's going on and why certain interventions might take place because part of the problem 
is that when an intervention is required, it can be quite a high-pressured situation. There's not a lot of time. A mother is obviously in the throes of her labour and contractions, so not likely to be taking in every detail. And it seems to me that the outcome of not knowing what can happen during a pregnancy and why a caesarean might be suggested is that a woman ends up feeling that she had no control over her birth and therefore might experience birth trauma after birth. Is that part of what you're hoping you can um, avoid when you're explaining what obstructions can happen during labour? Oh, most definitely. So we'd be very keen to avoid uh, the emotional concerns. However, I still also would caution and reassure women that in the most cases, if we need to act quickly to save the baby, the birthing women uh, in general are really quite amazing. They will consent to the procedure, although pretty quickly. And then afterwards, as health professionals, as midwives and doctors, we really are very keen to do what's called a thorough debriefing. We run through when there's time, when the baby's nice and safe, because it's not dependent on the placenta anymore and labour is at an end. We really spend a lot of time discussing at length what happened. It's retrospective, whereas reading this book, at least you get a better handle. And so what you had mentioned, which is a very valid concern, it's coming into the uh, the psyche more and more, and deservedly so. Ending up with birth trauma with emotion happens. It's very much in the minority, whereas a cesarean section for fetal distress happens quite commonly, which is good. But yes, ultimately, I hope that this book may help women who are destined for that very difficult path. So what actually happens during a unplanned caesarean? So a caesarean that um, is recommended in that second stage of labour? Yeah, no, unplanned caesarean sections can definitely happen any time until the baby comes out, so the first and second stage. Okay, so what, um, what is the actual procedure? There are two types of caesarean sections and they also, it's important to know because they have varying degrees of uh, being time critical. So the two main reasons we do caesarean sections is firstly, fetal distress. We've monitored the fetal heart rate and we have really critical concerns that the baby may be really starved of oxygen and may be in peril. So that's fetal distress being one reason. And the second is labour hasn't progressed. That cervix just hasn't dilated. We can give a medication to encourage it to dilate, but for some it doesn't dilate. Baby too big, baby facing the wrong way. So those are the two main reasons, fetal distress or failure to progress. If you have a situation of failure to progress uh, and the baby's otherwise well, there is time. We're still talking about wanting to birth the baby and do a caesarean section within the next hour or two or three, but there's time. Whereas when there's fetal distress, there's variations of how time critical it is. There's some heart rate traces which are really very red line stuff where we are really worried about the baby. We call the code green and the ba- and the mum gets rushed very quickly to theatre and we will be birthing the baby by Caesar within 15 to 20 minutes of making the call. And we do not like to do code greens unless we really are worried about the baby because it is a real rush and it is very scary for the parents. Uh, more commonly, when there's fetal distress, there is time, but we would still probably want to do that caesarean section within an hour or two. 
what can a mother expect if uh, her obstetrician has said, look, I think the baby's in distress, we need to do a caesarean now, and it isn't uh, necessarily time-dependent as in it needs to be rushed, the green code. What would it be like for her? Firstly, I would reassure them that the midwifery team and the obstetric team, we work hand in glove uh, and we are very aware that it can be a scary situation. So the midwife who's one-to-one looking after the pregnant woman and would have bonded over those few hours, the huge reassuring thing is she will always be the front person providing care and she'll be a very reassuring voice as things develop as will the obstetrician, depending on the model of care. And they've often met the obstetrician team as well. So we'll go and do a consent. The obstetrician will step out and call theatre to book the caesarean section, get a paediatric team, etc. The midwife will just be getting the uh, mum into a gown and getting into the right clothes. There may be some checklists for governance, which is important. And then if it's not a rush, rush, then a theatre tech will turn up with another bed, uh, shuffle the mum over. And the midwife that's been looking after the mum will usually come to theatre with her. Uh, So that's a very important aspect of reassurance. And then we get to theatre, meet the theatre staff. Now, they're new faces and it's a bit of a stark, different light than maybe the dimness of birth week. But I ask women not to be scared. They're all part of our team. They've just not met the theatre staff. And then the theatre staff will uh, move the woman in, meet the anaesthetist. Anaesthetist will put in a what's called a spinal anaesthetic. If there's already an epidural in, they'll just top it up. And then the same obstetrician that said hello in the birth suite will then do the caesarean section. I'll also just add as another reassuring aspect if a caesar is needed. Often there's a clearly a bit of tension when we're called a caesar and a bit of anxiety. Usually that anxiety actually lifts once we have the lovely situation of the baby popping out and the first cry. And mum can often be holding baby next to her head as the cesarean section has been completed. And usually mums are far more relaxed even at that point. And then the tension just lifts and there's a quite a much more happy mood in theatre. And um, if we go back to the labouring suite before cesareans, let's just go on another choose your own adventure. So this time we're we're looking at um, the labour progressing as normal. Yeah. What are the options for pain relief? You mentioned an epidural there. What are the other options that um, mothers can choose? Yes. So there isn't just the epidural for sure. I, I put in the book the pain relief chapter really quite early because I think it's a very important thing for women to know. I'm really keen as women maybe who are pregnant and approaching birth to really understand their pain relief options well. So the first thing I'd just like to mention, Siobhan, is that pain has two components. It's both got an emotional component, which we now know is really important. You talked about birth trauma, etc. And so there's the emotional component and there's the sensory component. So it's not just about making it feel less painful. So a lot of the what we call the non-pharmacological options to uh, deal with the emotional aspect of pain, not so much the sensory, but that can be of inestimable benefit for the mum 
And if her experience is good, then she's had a good birth. And these include uh, emotional support, a well-timed hug by a partner, anyone, other support people in the room. Some people would like to invite a doula in, and if they want to do that and get to know them well, I, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, they could set the mood, candles, music, aromatherapy. Uh, they can learn techniques which focus on breathing, like hypnobirthing classes. They can move, stand, sway, bounce on a ball. And light touch is also very important, or a soak in the bath. And then there's pharmacological options, and they include, there aren't many of them, there would be an injection, there'll be firstly the gas nitric oxide, which can take the edge off the pain, and there is a morphine injection, it used to be pethidine, but we don't like pethidine as much for reasons that it can make the baby too drowsy when it comes out, we can give a morphine injection, and finally, the only way which you can really dramatically get rid of the sensory pain of labour is the epidural. I definitely want to talk to you about epidurals, but before we get there, you mentioned water injections in your book, yes. and I've never heard of that. Can you talk to us about it? So water injections is a very safe option where the uh, midwife will offer injections which are blebs of water which go into the lower back. So you can inject it in four quadrants because it's just water. You can have it over and over again. And it can provide a lot of relief for women. So is it placebo? Well, I would be generous to water injections and say not necessarily uh, because there is a theory which is called gate theory. It's more covered in the book where if you stimulate non-pain fibres such as sensation fibres, it may be an effective way to dampen the sensation of pain. And that's how water injections just might work. Okay. So let's talk about the epidural because you write that it has become somewhat politicised. In what way and why do you think that's happened? Oh, it's certainly uh, politicised. I had uh, I was visiting a, another academic in the UK. I was sitting in the uh, waiting room of another maternity hospital and a woman goes up to a, a new mum, obviously new mum, and the first question she asked, almost like a challenge, you didn't even know the poor woman, just said, uh, did you do it without an epidural or not? And wow. it's just become very direct and politicised. People, it's one of the few things where friends are still happy to really foister their opinion of why you want to have an epidural or not. And there is a lot of health experts which push that an epidural causes you to start a whirlwind of increasing medical interventions, which medical evidence has really not been able to prove that that's true. So that's important for women to know. And uh, just a quick one, it's been very interesting how the control of women's pain has just had fads over the last 150 years. So when uh, chloroform was first discovered, that's not used so much now, but it was used for pain relief during birth for well over 100 years. When it was firstly discovered, Queen Victoria was quite interested in trying it out. All her advisors said, uh, no, don't, don't use it. But she insisted at the end with Prince Leopold after two more births. And then there was a movement in the early 1900s where women were demanding more pain relief and there was a strange little fad where women were quite sedated and there was uh, the feminist movement was to support that. And then there was a radical 
inversion where some of the proactive movement was don't use medical interventions. So that's the politics painted hopefully neutrally. I don't actually want to get into the politics. And what I've tried to do with the book is I've just presented the pros and cons, and I want to let women try to decide whether they want an epidural. Yes. Well, um, having had an epidural, they are kind of magical. <laughs> I remember when yeah. I had one, I was like, wow. Can <laughs> I just amazing. interrupt that? It's certainly got its fans. I had a private patient who said to me, uh, for this pregnancy, I have one birth plan. I want to walk into the hospital backwards during birth. <laughs> I get that epidural in as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> what, what child was that? Was it a second child then? Yeah, second. She had it first time and she became a fan. She was a fan. Uh, well, listen, Stephen, I know the book covers so much more. There's so much information in it. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, but it does, I think, give people a sense of what they can learn from the book. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. Siobhan, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. That's Professor Stephen Tong. His book is called The Birth Book. And if you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the notes of this episode. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time. <laughs>